This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Most of these interviews were originally conducted for KPFA's Bookwaves program and its predecessor, Probabilities. Mystery and suspense novelist Shelley Singer died of heart failure on November 10, 2022, at the age of 83. The author of six mysteries featuring Detective Jake Sampson, four featuring amateur detective Barrett Lake, two science fiction novels, one mainstream novel, and several short stories. She was a key writer in the Sisters in Crime movement of the 80s and 90s. She also taught fiction writing and served as a manuscript consultant. Richard Lupoff and I interviewed Shelley Singer at her home on November 19, 1986. At the time of the interview, she'd published three Jake Sampson mysteries with a fourth on the way, along with an early science fiction novel. But that's not the end of our connection with Shelley. Our program, Probabilities, featured a monthly book review segment. A few months after the interview, she joined our monthly team and continued to review books on the air for the next few years, until she moved a distance away and chose not to commute to Berkeley. But having her around was an absolute delight. That 1986 interview was kind of a mess because her dogs were running around barking, knocking into furniture, which you'll hear, and basically creating havoc. Most of it is edited out of this interview. Sadly, it's really the only extant recording we made of Shelley talking about her own career. Good evening. Welcome to Probabilities. I'm Richard Walensky. With me, Richard A. Lupoff. And our guest tonight is Shelley Singer, who has written three Jake Sampson mysteries, Sampson's Deal, Free Draw, and Full House, and has another coming out when? Spring of 87. It's called Spit in the Ocean. Have you written any other? Yeah, there was a first novel that I don't talk about, because it wasn't very good. I said, I mean, it's okay. And I'm working on a fifth Jake Sampson right now. Was that first novel published? Yeah. It's been really peculiar, all of my books have been published that I've written. But you'd rather not tell us about it anyway. Oh, it's okay. It's just kind of a dumb book. I mean, well, I shouldn't say that because there are people who like it. It's kind of science fiction, and mm -hmm. it's called The Demeter Flower. And essentially, it's about parthenogenesis. I wrote it under, that was under Rochelle's name, which is also me, which is the real name of Shelley. Oh, Rochelle Singer. Right. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Is that available, or is it difficult yeah, to find? Yeah, it's available. It's in trade paper. I'm in love with my mysteries, which is why I never talked about the first one. That's a little bit of a surprise for me. I was not aware of the Demeter Flower. Well, it's a whole different person. Okay. Right. How did that happen, and then how did the change come about? I was just sort of fantasizing about the future sometime around 1976 and wondering what would be the least offensive resolution of the way things were going uh, in terms of the world being destroyed. And I wrote this story. And it got published, and then I tried to write another one like it, even a sequel to it, and I got really bored and didn't quite know what to do, realized I was reading about 200 murder mysteries a year, yeah. realized obviously this was something I loved, why didn't I try to write one? And, of course, I've been doing it ever since. Well, we're skipping a little bit ahead. What's your background? I mean, <laughs> Shelley Singer comes up, writes one science fiction novel under a different name, and then three mystery novels. Where did you grow up? Did you write as a kid? I love listening to other writers tell. I grew up in Minneapolis, and I grew up in two different 
world in Minneapolis. I grew up in a Jewish ghetto on the one side, and on the other side, we bought a little neighborhood grocery store in a very poor neighborhood on the whole other side of town and lived there. Uh, I was suddenly exposed to a culture, a class of people, uh, an alien group at the age of 10, and it was very exciting. I got so excited, I decided to become a writer. What was the nature of the alien group? Well, they were Protestants, for one thing. (laughs) (laughs) Not everybody's Jewish? I didn't know that. That's sort of how it felt. It was also a very poor neighborhood in a lot of ways. It was in, Because it was Minneapolis, it was largely Scandinavian. But over a period of a very few years, a lot of different kinds of people, a lot of different groups, uh, we had a band of gypsies living there one year. Uh, it was a very exciting neighborhood for a kid to grow up in, and I really enjoyed it. I loved it. It was a very violent, crime-ridden neighborhood. But I was excited by the people I met and decided that I wanted to write novels. My first story was a science fiction story because that's what I was reading then as a kid mostly. It was a a trick ending. It was um, about somebody visiting an alien planet and describing it and it was all very subtle and of course the the punchline was that the alien planet was Earth and this was an alien. Yes. Mm -hmm. You didn't sell it. I sent it to Seventeen magazine and they said they didn't buy that kind of thing. I think it was a form letter. No, I didn't sell it. Yeah. <laughs> it's a nice idea, and it's been nice since 1922 or whatever. <laughs> well, it wasn't too much long after that that I wrote it, actually. But... This is a standard story. Yeah, I was every, about 11 right, years old. Every young person who discovers right. science fiction writes this story. I, apparently, right? yeah. then, then they discover, oh, well, <laughs> a lot of other people wrote this story, too. I wrote it also. Then I realized that... Uh, yes, I wanted to write novels. I wanted to write Robin Hood, really, is what I wanted to write. But that I couldn't make a living that way. So I went into journalism, which was probably the biggest mistake I ever made. Uh, once I got into it, I was a college editor, and I loved that at Minnesota. But once I got into real journalism, which turned out to be UPI, Chicago Bureau, mm-hmm. Cook County Jail, Death Row, wonderful things like that, it, I really didn't like it. I like to write. I don't like to report particularly. I don't mind doing research for a book. So I did that, and then I quit, and then I did a whole lot of very strange things for about 15 years. Everything from writing correspondence courses to rebuilding antiques. You did write correspondence courses. I did. Okay. Did you also sell Amway because of uh, Well, it wasn't Amway. It was the old um, Holiday Magic uh, Pyramid. We were talking about that. I worked for one of the Holiday... I lived in Marin for several years, and I worked for one of their charming companies. I was in charge of their publicity department. The uh, We wrote all of the garbage for the salespeople. And it was an interesting job. I was allowed to completely create this, this department from nothing, which meant I hired every poet I could find in Marin County. I have not been really good at doing jobs for other people. I, I tend to um, do better on my own. You, you have a uh, an ongoing detective hero, which is very popular these days. Lots and lots of detective series are out there. All right, you sat down to write one. What happened? Where do these things come from, and what's the process from that mustard seed of an idea to Samson's deal? Actually, in order to loosen up for writing my first detective novel, I wrote a porn novel that no one will ever see. Out of that character, the major character, and that it was sort of a detective porn novel, Jake began to kind of evolve. Jake is, is, I don't know, he reminds me, my nephew reminds me of Jake. Um, a lot of men that I've known in my life remind me of Jake. He developed really before any of the, any ideas for a plot ever developed. As a person, he developed. 
And he's a former cop, Chicago cop. Former Chicago cop, yeah. Jake, strangely enough, just like I did, lived in Chicago in the 60s and was there in 68. He was a cop. I had really strong memories of the 60s in Chicago, especially that convention. And I wanted Jake to be there, but I didn't want him to be there as one of the people who came in. I wanted him to be there as one of the people who was there yeah. at the time. It was pretty frightening. Uh, some of the uh, reminiscences that he goes through in in your books I, I, I found very powerful because uh, I was not in Chicago at the time. I was living on the East Coast, mm -hmm. but I was following it very closely. And I suppose people of a certain age, right, those who are too young, it's, it's history, or they just don't right. even know what it's about at all, but people of, uh, of a sufficient age to have, to have remembered it as actually going on. It was just one. It shouldn't of be so delicate. We are definitely of a sufficient age. Yeah. Well, seeing the effect that it had, it was my neighborhood was right around the corner from from Lincoln Park, and the effect that it had on the neighborhood, on the cops who worked the neighborhood, on the people who lived in the neighborhood, was really powerful. It was a strong time, and it smelled real strong too. That we could smell the tear gas for days. Jake Sampson, remember, this is a fictional character, the cop. Right. He just didn't want to put up with any more of this, so he bailed out and wound up living on the West Coast. Yeah, well, Jake was and is essentially a cop in a way. He's, he's a humanist, but he has a cop's attitudes in a lot of ways, I think. Such as what? Well, let's, let's call him an ideal cop. He has a need to see, to see justice done. He has a need to see things solved and set right, a need to protect Cops who go into it with a lot of idealism do go into it with that in mind. At the same time, he, he was pretty disillusioned by what he did as a cop, by what happened to him as a cop. He didn't want to have any part of that, and he did what so many people did at that time, was just get the hell out. Here we have Samson's Deal, published 1983. Now, I should mention, all of these books take place in this area. Mm-hmm. In fact... Samson lives here. Samson lives here. Yeah. In this house. Exactly. Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> what is their lifestyle? And if you'll tell our listeners who Rosie is and what is their relationship and lifestyle. Okay. Jake is Rosie's landlord, essentially. She, she rents the cottage from him. Jake is extremely heterosexual male. He and Rosie love each other very much. Rosie is a lesbian. They're kind of like siblings in some ways. Their relationship is very, very loving. They're very close. And their friendship is very deep. She's a carpenter. Mm -hmm. Competent person. Jake, it strikes me, despite being an ex-cop, doesn't have the kind of earthy competence that Rosie has. No, in a way he doesn't. Jake is Jake is hard even for me to describe sometimes. He's he's sort of a plotting intellectual in some ways. He's he feels very deeply and he thinks things out very carefully and he gets he's a very passionate man. He gets very angry, he gets very upset. But he isn't as grounded as Rosie is. She's very sensible and he he loses it sometimes. He's not a professional private eye either. No, he is definitely not. Jake is an anarchist. I have a little problem at this point. I don't understand how Jake makes a living. Okay, well, I've explained that if you've read the books carefully. First of all, he gets rent. Secondly, okay. he has a trust fund. Thirdly, he does get a little bit of money here and there from these cases. So it's sort of a hit and miss kind of thing. He's also a sort of phony journalist. A very phony journalist, yes. Okay, what about that? What's the magazine that he works for? Probe magazine in San Francisco. A friend of his is one of the editors, and he gave him identification saying that, that Jake was a freelancer so that Jake could poke his nose into things without uh, getting it cut off. Well, one of the things I've noticed in your in the, the two of the books that I read is that you tend to have real places, thinly disguised 
I mean, they go into a bar in Oakland, which is thinly disguised ollies. Right. They go up to the Russian River and go to a bar, which is thinly disguised fipes in the woods. Mm-hmm. So on and so forth. What is Yoshi's. Uh... <laughs> what is probe? Is that a real one, too? No. Mother Jones. How could I say that? I work for the Express one day and a half a week. I, you know. <laughs> what do you do for the Express? I'm the proofreader. So you, you don't... I also edit, but, but I don't tell anybody that. You wrote Samson's Deal. Obviously, having a major character who's a lesbian, writing conventional, in quotation marks, mysteries, did you run into any problems marketing it? Um, no. St. Martin's doesn't have a problem with that. I, For all I know, it hurts sales. That's certainly possible that it does. I haven't gotten any indication of that. I have no idea. I honestly have yeah. no idea. There's not been a problem with that. I suspect that... Well, I can't even say it's kept me out of book clubs because the detective book club picked up Full House. If it's having any kind of bad effect, I don't know about it. My only thought on that point is that St. Martin's, Walker, Doubleday, publishers like this that have lots of library contract sales, Mm -hmm. I know tend to be very, very skittish Mm -hmm. over anything that might tread on... In fact, an editor at one of these companies, who was an editor at Doubleday, told me uh, some time ago that... They really have to think about small towns in the Midwest and in the Bible Belt where you have a library board that is very, very, very conservative in their Mm -hmm. outlook. And, you know, they shriek even at hells and dams. So, (laughs) Well, what can I do about them? You should see, I got a review once from Chattanooga that was not to be believed. But anyway, there's there's nothing you (laughs) can do about them. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You want me to quote? I can't quote it word for word, but it was something like, Singer takes us to places we would rather not go, with people we would rather not do, not rather not know, who are doing things we would rather not know about. It was one of the best. Oh. I was a great review. I loved it. Was St. Martin's the first publisher you approached? St. Martin's had already yeah. been my publisher. They had done your science fiction book. And, uh, yeah. And my agent just said, well, let's send it to Michael. Michael's my editor. And, uh, and they bought it. And they've been buying them ever since. Great. First try. Mm -hmm. That's very good. Well, the first book, the first novel, went, I think, to three or four houses before St. Martin's bought it. But I've been with them since. Again, the first one concerns the murder here in the Berkeley Hills, a UC prof and his wife. Actually, it was the Oakland Hills. It was Montclair. I do need to defend Oakland. Nobody ever admits (laughs) that anything happens in Oakland. The second one, Free Draw, Mm -hmm. uh, I I think is is a... book that's marvelous for its background. Correspondent school pyramids scheme. The town meeting in the hot tub, which Francini and Muller quoted in A Thousand and One Midnights. In part by coincidence and in part by design, I read that scene while sitting in a bathtub. (laughs) I probably wrote it while sitting in a bathtub. I do a lot of things. It was just hilarious. Thank you. Thank you. I, I really enjoyed writing that book. I think of the three, I shouldn't be saying things like, of the three first ones, that's my favorite. Then the one that's coming out in the spring is is equal to that one, as far as I'm concerned, and, it, and as far as the way I feel about it. Yeah, Free Draw was fun. It was a lot of fun. I got to say a lot of things about a lot of places and a lot of things about Marin County that I wanted to say. <laughs> I suppose we'll have some people demanding equal time for Marin County. I love Marin County. I thought I made that clear. And the correspondence school. The correspondence school that that was modeled. Well, it was modeled on two separate companies, really. It was it was a, a conglomerate, so to speak, of the correspondence school I worked for in Chicago and the pyramid scheme I worked for. So it was a combination of things. What about the guy you shot at trees? Oh, well, he was kind of like a neighbor I had in a canyon in Mill Valley. 
And then Full House, which again uh, draws upon local geography. I used to come off the freeway exit near my house, which is not very far from yours, and see that boat being built for years. I mean, that was one of the slowest construction projects I've ever seen. And I kept wondering, what's that guy going to do with it when he finishes? This is a man building a huge concrete boat in his backyard. You're kidding. Where was that? You made that up? I made that up. No, I was talking about this lot on the corner here that they finally put up some condominiums mm -hmm. on. Oh. For years, this thing was vacant. The things that were going on, they were not to be believed. I mean, it was like nobody knew what was going to be tried next. So I just thought, well, let's have someone build an ark on it. Oh, that's marvelous. That's very funny. It's, yeah. it's sort of eerie. Actually. Yeah, well, get used to that when you write. And how, how have these books done? They're doing pretty well. As I said, Full House got bought by the Detective Book Club, which is mm -hmm. nice. For hardcover mysteries, I think they're doing real well. But, you know, other than that, there's not much to say. I did I did have some foreign sales, but the German publisher went broke. The first two were bought by a paperback company. Uh, it's called Paperjacks. So I don't know what's going to happen with, uh, with the rest at this point. But, yeah, they're doing fine. Out of curiosity, Full House, Free Draw, Samson's Deal, Spit in the Ocean, card games. Poker. Poker. Just coincidence... No, all the titles, when people are finally catching on, it's uh, all the titles will have something to do with poker. It's Jake's favorite game, and coincidentally mine. Now, what, what's the theme of Spit in the Ocean? Well, Spit in the Ocean takes place up on the North Coast, and it centers around the vandalism and theft at a sperm bank on the North Coast. You managed to get pretty strange things and very <laughs> funny things in all of these books. Thank you. I have a very strange mind, apparently. I don't find it strange. I mean, these are things that I really find interesting. I think yeah. sperm banks are fascinating, and, and of course they're funny. I mean, life is funny. <laughs> After Spit in the Ocean, you said you'd begun working on a fifth one. Yeah. It's a little hard to say what it's what it's going to be about at this point. I, I generally don't talk about a book when it's in the very beginning stages. This is really the very beginning. I've written maybe the first three chapters uh, and gotten a lot of ideas. It's I'm pretty sure that it's going to be about the Green Party, uh, which I think is a really interesting phenomenon. And the things that are happening in this country around it now are kind of interesting to me. You think there's going to be a major Green Party in the U.S.? I don't know. It may not be major for a while, but I think there's going to be a lot of action going on. I really do. I think they're really interesting, and, and they're organizing pretty heavily now out here. And I want to find out more about them. How about other books in your head? Okay. Well, I have the masterpiece in my head, of course which I keep trying to write, but I keep I keep missing Jake. <laughs> I've gotten very attached to this person. The book that I wanted to write when I was 12, it, it goes back to that grocery store. And it's partly the grocery store, partly the, the girl growing up in that grocery store, and partly her father growing up in Russia and coming here as, a, as an adult. It's pretty unformed. I've got about 50 pages of it tucked away. It's kind of a uh, two-phase thing, back and forth, father daughter. And uh, I really like what I have, especially the child growing up in the early 50s. But I haven't really been able to justify for some reason taking the time to sit down and spend yeah. the two, three years it might take to write it. You mentioned your editor before, yeah. and you mentioned your agent. I'd like you to talk a little bit about these relationships, how it works, particularly with you as the author living on the West Coast mm -hmm. and your publisher being on the East Coast. What sort of problems this makes or just how you deal with that. Yeah, I think it's really a big problem. I think West Coast writers get uh, get short shrift in New York. Mm -hmm. I really do. I think that there's a lot of provincial, well, New York is a provincial town. 
And I think that writers who write about New York probably get more money, probably sell more books, probably all kinds of things. My agent started out here. Would you mind mentioning your agent and editor's name? Yeah, my agent is is Elizabeth Lay. She started out here, um, well, in 1976, I was at a Thanksgiving party, and this woman walked up to me and said, I hear you're working on a novel, and I said, yes. And she said, well, I'm thinking about becoming a literary agent. Can I see it? And I said, okay. And she read it, and she said, will you be my first client? And I said, fine. Well, she's in New York now. She's doing real well. She's still my agent after all these years, despite a thousand fights. Very good friend. My editor is Michael Denany. I think of him as a friend. I, I like him very much. Mm-hmm. We've we've only actually met per- person to person and fa- you know face to face once, but we've had some really nice correspondence, and yeah. he's had some really he sent me some really lovely letters. I'm very fond of him. I wish I weren't. In some ways, it's I don't think it's a good thing to be personally fond of your agent and your editor. I mean, this is not good business, you know, but it just happened to work out that way. The one good thing about the personal relationship that Michael and I have is that he really understands what I'm trying to do every time. And if he thinks there's something wrong, he's right. And he's right every time. We never argue. We never have. Does he request a lot of revisions? No. No, very few. As I said, I was telling you earlier on on the one that I that I sent uh, that's going to be out uh, spit in the ocean, right? I sent it to him. The contract has been here and gone, and I haven't even heard from him. All I know is he's buying it. So you know. Well, a couple of other questions on, on the business side of it. Mm-hmm. For one thing, without wanting to pry into your personal finances, <laughs> but is it possible to make a living? Do they pay a, a decent wage for this kind of book? Oh God, no. When I first decided to be a novelist, at, you know, which is what I had always wanted to be, and I was going to do it one way or the other, I, I took a vow of poverty. It takes years to begin to make anything like a living. You need paperback sales, foreign sales, all kinds of things. Uh, you need a lot of books out, and you need money coming in from all of them at once before you really begin to make a living. Most writers have either cut their living situation to the bone, which is one of the things that I did, or they have other jobs, or they have spouses who support them. It just takes a very long time. Uh, when a book like this comes out, what would be a typical print run of a uh, of a standard type category novel? Hmm, anywhere from four to seven thousand. Yeah, it's you know no, you, it's very hard to make a yeah. living. If some of our listeners are interested in being writers, which I'm sure they are, how would somebody go about doing this? I mean, you, you have to start off, say, by writing short stories for Ellery Queen, or mm-hmm. you. Use, Start right off with a novel. How does they do? How do they do it? I have never liked writing short stories. I've never liked reading them. There are novelists and there are short story writers. Some people are both. Some people can add to their income by sending out some short stories as well as the novels. I don't just don't like to write them. I may write one or two in the next year or so, but it's not. It's certainly not my first choice. I would say that if somebody wanted to write novels, they should sit down and write a novel. You know the great cliche: just finish it and send it out, and that's it. Finishing is hard. Do you know the end of your stories before you begin them? No. Well, I know that virtue will always triumph. But do, you know, do you know who the murderer is, for example? Uh, sometimes I don't know that for the first hundred pages. What I like to do is explore the characters and the situations, and then I figure out who would have done it, and then I go back and rewrite. Now, for instance, um, the Ark book that was mm-hmm, Full, Full House, House, there's a whole complicated explanation in fact, it appeared in reading it, now maybe I lost something, that actually Jake didn't do much of anything in that. <laughs> sure he did. What do you mean? <laughs> well, he didn't exactly solve it, and the cops were there when it was necessary, but it was a long, complicated 
plot, mm-hmm. you know, in the end, had right. that been worked out before you began? I must have written 50 pages before I really began to work out the plot. The plotting, the outlining, these are all things I do after I write in a few scenes and a lot of characters. Then it becomes a very intricate plotting mm-hmm. process, very intricate outlining process with notes hanging everywhere. Although now I have a computer, I'd be able to be much more efficient about it. I can lose it all. How about the fact that in Full House, Jake was always one step behind the cops? I've never, I've never read a detective book where the detective was a little, a tad slower. Yeah, well, I've gotten really, I get really sick of the, of the, the all powerful. Jake is a human being, and in, he screws up. He's not perfect. He's, I think he's a really good detective, but he's bound to get in a situation from time to time where he's behind everybody else and trying to catch up because he's human. Because I want him to be human. That's what I did in that book. It isn't the same at all in Spit in the Ocean. In Spit in the Ocean, he's very much on top of things. It's, it was kind of uh, refreshing to read a book where the detective just didn't really pull it off. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> Jake had a lot of problem with his parents. Exactly. <laughs> is there any autobiography involved there? Well, not really. Jake's father is a little bit like my mother. But I think in some ways he's kind of classic. He's like some of my uncles and some of my aunts, too. My mother used to visit me a lot. That's maybe that's that's autobiographical, but it, not really. Jake's family, I think he has a hard time getting them to understand what do we call it? The West, Northern California lifestyle, <laughs> West Coast. Uh, well, I think that's autobiographical for anybody who's moved out here from anywhere else. It's incomprehensible to other people. I, I think it's incomprehensible to New York publishing. I think that's one of the problems that West Coast writers have. Yeah, I, th- I think that people's families, people's friends who live in the East or in the Midwest really don't quite understand how we survive out here. Do you? No. For me, that's, that's just about it, but I would yeah. like to ask you about your computer since you mentioned you just got <laughs> one. You didn't use it for any books so far. You're just no. working with it now. No. Up until last year, I used a 45-year-old Royal Standard, and I loved it. I've been using it for 25 years. Then I got a little electric typewriter, and it took me about two months to adjust to that. The step from the electric typewriter to the computer was a much smaller step yeah. for me than from the manual to the electric typewriter. I, I'm not sure why. <coughs> But I haven't used it yet. I'm going to be interested to see how it works. I wrote 24 books on an IBM Selectric, and I was terrified to use the computer. Yeah. And I had a little gap in my work schedule, and I I had a book that had been kicking around the back of my mind for a long time that I had just never done anything with. And I said, as a training exercise, I'll sit down and I'll try and write this book. And in 19 days, I wrote the book. It just came out. Right. It's wonderful. I'm crazy about it. Now. That would be terrific. Only, now, see, that way you could actually make a living. Right the only, <laughs> the only thing I didn't, I couldn't figure out how to how to do was was to get the thing to address envelopes properly, and I finally worked that out. <laughs> so now it's all set. And my poor old electric just sits there. And yeah, I've got all these dust. things sitting around to write on, and I don't know. As I noted before the interview, Shelley joined our program for its monthly review show for the next three years or so before retiring to the countryside. She continued to write, of course, with another two Jake Sampson books after Spit in the Ocean, four books featuring a different protagonist, Barrett Lake, plus the first in an uncompleted science fiction trilogy, Torch Song, which was published in 2014. You're listening to an interview with the late mystery writer Shelley Singer, former Probabilities book reviewer on KPFA, 
who died at the age of 83 on November 10, 2022, recorded at her home on November 19, 1986. My co-host was Richard A. Lupoff. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. <laughs>